Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and this is the Planet Earth podcast beside a charming rock garden waterfall in the Alpine House of the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, home of the largest living plant collection in the world. We'll be discussing a few of those plants in just a moment. Also coming up, how forests millions of years ago helped transform the Earth's landscape. And we head south to Antarctica, where researchers are going to extremes for the sake of science. Okay, Andy, good to go. Oh, have fun, guys. More on that later, after I take in just a fraction of the 30,000 species that are here in Kew Gardens. It would take an enormous amount of time to see them all, not least because the site covers 300 acres and there are 20 miles of paths. It's also a centre for plant research, though, as scientists have been based here for more than 250 years, and I'm joined by one of them, Mike Fay, Head of Genetics at Kew's Jodrell Laboratory. Mike, you've been doing research on a plant that gardeners might know, commonly called a crown imperial or snake's head fritillary. There aren't any flowering here at the moment, but uh, there are images that people can see on the website, and they're they're rather beautiful, brightly coloured orange and yellow flowers. Very pretty, and and I would say fairly exotic. The fritillaries are a large group of plants. There are many species in Eurasia, and also another group of species in the western part of North America. Certainly the crown imperial is quite a widely grown plant and snake's head fritillary, although it's a very rare plant in the UK as a wild plant, is widely grown in people's gardens. And, and is it related to the lily family, is that right? They are a member of the lily family and in fact the fritillaries are the closest relatives of the true lilies. So why are their genomes of interest to you? Most flowering plants have very small genomes, about the same size or even smaller than the human genome. The reason that the human genome was able to be sequenced a few years ago is because humans only have a relatively small amount of DNA in every cell, despite the fact that we see ourselves as being the pinnacle of evolution. But when you look at the flowering plants, you find a a very wide variation in genome size. So you have some plants which have much less DNA in each cell than the human genome, and then you find others, including the fritillaries, which have many times more DNA than you would find in the human genome. And how large are the genomes of these particular species compared to other types of plants? The record holder in terms of plant genomes for many years was in fact a species of fritillary. So from 1976 when one of our colleagues was working on the evolution of genome size he discovered a plant which had then the largest genome known for a flowering plant. How many genes do you know? Well, they all have more or less the same number of genes, and one of the interesting questions isn't how many genes they have, but what all the other DNA is doing. That DNA is so-called junk DNA, or there are various different names that are given for it, and it doesn't actually do very much for the plants. So plants with small genomes still produce leaves, they produce their own food by photosynthesis, they produce flowers and roots and seeds and all the things that flowering plants do. It's really a bit of an enigma as to why some plants carry around all this extra DNA with them. And that's one of the questions that hopefully we will answer in the next few years. And how does this research relate to the recent discovery of the largest plant genome that's ever been found? Earlier this year, a colleague of ours in the Netherlands found a plant which had a larger genome, which had been found in 1976 in the fritillary. But these things never happen alone and then we discovered in the Jodrell laboratory a plant which had an even bigger genome again and in this case it happens to be a relative of Herb Paris or Trillium that people may know from their gardens. 
does size matter when it comes to plants? Plants with very large genomes are restricted in the environments in which they can live. So if you go to the tropics, for example, you'll find that none of the plants that you see there have very large genomes. If you think about weeds that grow quickly as annuals in your garden, then they all have very small genomes because plants with large genomes can't grow quickly enough to become successful weeds. They're also affected by such things as industrial pollution. So plants with large genomes are more affected by pollution than those with small genomes in many cases. And they're also excluded from extreme environments. So if the environment changes, be it in terms of temperature from climate change or in terms of, say, more pollution, then these are the plants that are going to be more at risk. They're already restricted in the environments that they can live. And if climate change happens to any great degree and temperatures rise dramatically, for example, then you may find that some of these areas where these plants grow that they're no longer suitable climate for those plants and those plants are pushed towards the edge. Mike Fay, thank you. When you're in Kew Gardens on a sunny autumnal day, it's hard to imagine diving in sub-zero temperatures beneath sea ice in one of the most isolated places on Earth. Yet that's exactly what Claire Lehman has been up to at the British Antarctic Research Station at Rothera on the Antarctic Peninsula. Claire is the station's medical doctor, but she joined the diving team for our latest audio diary. We're just heading out across the runway to go diving. However, rather than going out by boat, that noise in the distance is actually skiddy. And uh, we're going ice diving. Are we all going to fit on? Hi Becky, Um, that's just to say that we're on the ice by the uh, dive hole. Uh, There are five of us, Terry and Andy diving, JJ supervising, Dickie tendering and me. Okay, that's all copied. Next call, uh, 3-0 divers in. Copy that. Andy, did you both want to get your fitting on if that's right? Oh, well this is a weight belt to try and go over the buoyancy end of the, the dry suit and the undersuit. Uh, make me sink. And this one is a chest harness. So that our, that yep. Just so that the, the safety line is attached to the diver's chest now and underneath our buoyancy control device, our BCD, so that there's no way we can actually lose the attachment to the surface, so we're always secure. Okay, so now just running through all the checks for the dives to make sure everything's working. Touch your weights, knives, Knives, gauges. Profile? It's 2125. That's 21 metres for 25 minutes. So you can just go down and have a quick check, yeah? So what's Terry checking for? Uh, So just going to go check under the ice to make sure it's all safe. Can you put the pod in, please, mate, and just head the box on? Okay, Andy, good to go. Oh, have fun, guys. Okay, I think he's all fading out. Oh, dive team. Dive team up. Yeah, that's divers in the water. Roger that. Next call, 3-0, divers out. Roger. And just to describe the scene for you, uh, we're in Hangar Cove, which is 
as the name suggests, just close to the hangar. Um, the sea ice has formed. It's been about minus 20 um, for the last week. So we've got very thick sea ice at the moment, um, which the guys dug ho- a hole, or rather cut a hole with a chainsaw. And there's some beautiful icebergs which have grounded in shallow, shallower waters here. So they've got a dusting of snow on. It's very, very snowy today, but also quite calm. So it's actually not so bad to be outside. Okay, no problem. So what's that there? This is a commons box. So each diver, as part of their full face mask, uh, they have a little microphone and speaker attached to it. And so not only can they speak to each other, it's excellent so we can speak to the divers as well. And it's very important for safety so we can keep a contact on, with the divers to make sure that they're safe. Turn around and look at the hole. So now we uh, watch and wait. So they're now at the deep photographic plates, which are lied about 19, 20 metres. And they're probably only a few metres away from us from where we're standing. And so what they're doing now is Terry's taking photographs whilst Andy lifts off the plate. Once she takes a photo, he turns it around and pops it back down. Just a bit of teamwork, make things go a little bit quicker and a bit easier. What are the settlement plates looking at? It's kind of a long-term monitoring project. They're photographed every around every three months. Uh, and this is looking to see what colonisers on the plates over uh, a long period of time at different locations and at different depths. Because not only do we have ones at 19, 20 metres here, we also have them about 9, 10 metres around here as well. And so Terry takes photographs, she takes them back, records what's actually on the plates and what changes have been made. Um, and it's been going for, yeah, so at least 10 years. And it's just all this data is collected and just see over any changes in temperature that we've had, um, how much things change. Divers under the ice in Antarctica. Our correspondent was Claire Lehman, the doctor at the British Antarctic Survey Research Station at Rotherham. And if you've missed any of our previous audio diaries, you can hear them on our host website, Planet Earth Online. They include the challenge of tagging geese in Ireland, measuring mongooses in Uganda, and the joys of leeches in Borneo. You're listening to the Planet Earth podcast from Kew Gardens in London. The oldest trees here are sweet chestnuts, planted in the early 1700s. But the subject of our next report makes a 300-year-old tree resemble nothing more than a sapling. In 2007, American scientists discovered the intriguing fossilised remains of trees in New York State. They turned out to be 385 million years old, among the world's oldest trees. But the Americans needed a fossil tree expert in order to identify them, so they called in Dr Christopher Berry from Cardiff University's School of Earth and Ocean Sciences. I joined him in nearby Alexander Gardens, where he began by recalling the find. They were very strange trees called cladoxylopsids, which are now extinct. They had a long, thin trunk, and from the trunk came branches which were more or less like the shape of your arm from your elbow upwards. When you get to your palm then they'd have long slender branches which would be in the position of your fingers and attached to those were not leaves as such but sort of more stick-like appendages which were not webbed and nevertheless were probably photosynthetic. The tree grew obviously upwards and as it went upwards it would grow new branches which would fall off and that meant that at the top there was just a big 
crown of branches. The rest of the trunk was naked. Sounds almost like those tall palm trees you see as they get taller and taller and taller and then this sort of tuft at the top. That's correct. There's nothing exactly the same alive today, but nonetheless the the nearest analogues we have are palms and tree ferns. And the best way to see fossils of these ancient trees is to follow Christopher into the university. So this is a paleontology laboratory. Oh, lovely, oh, lovely squeaky door. And is that a... I hope that's not a priceless fossil you're using as a doorstop there. That uh, used to be a priceless fossil from Venezuela, but now I've chopped the fossil off it, so it's just a block of rock. Good. Well, let's see some of the uh, blocks of rock that you've got here in your laboratory. On the bench, we have some uh, slabs of dark grey mudstone. And on those slabs, we have some impressions and compressions of fossil trees. The compressions are of the branches of these fossil trees. It's not that easy to see, though. I mean, you're saying that, and I mean, I can see where the central one is, but it's harder to actually distinguish the bits you're looking for. Anna, you've just picked up a jar of liquid here. Yes, this is alcohol, and um, one of the ways we can see these fossils better is just by simply pouring some of the liquid onto the fossil. Oh, yes. And there you can see that the contrast between the fossil itself, made out of carbon, and the dark grey rock becomes enhanced. You can actually see what looks like a very feathery frond branch, about sort of the length of my finger. We can also make the same effect by using polarised light when we do our photography. And the outcome of that is to get beautiful photographs which are, are much more informative than the fossil specimens themselves. And what plant was this and, and when was this plant on the earth? The name of the plant is Archaeopteris. It's technically called a progymsperm, but this simply means it's related to the living conifers. And it was alive at the boundary between the Middle and Upper Devonian and that means 485 million years ago. So what can you learn from a large fossil like this? Because they are large, big slabs of rock compared to the ones that perhaps many collectors are familiar with, with ammonites on or things like that. What I'm particularly interested in is the morphology of the plant. That's to say its shape, its form and its size. And these fossils are particularly important because they tell us a bit about the size of a tree. If we're interested in the impact of trees on the environment, the amount of carbon in a plant is probably one of the most important things, as well as the size of its rooting system. Well, let's move across your laboratory now to another bench table where next to a microscope you've got a sequence of rocks that you've laid out for me, each one imprinted with rather beautiful stems, branches of ancient plants. Yes, these are more of the same type of plant. They're slightly younger. It is very similar in shape to a fern frond, but it's actually a branch of one of these early trees. And because it's a branch, it's much more woody. It would be much more stiff and um, not as floppy as a fern frond. But the structure is the same. You have a long central axis, little branches coming off the side on each side of that, forming a, a large sort of flattened structure. And then attached to those little branches are little leaves. Moving along then, how does this differ? Because the rocks towards the right-hand side are quite different in terms of their fossils because those ones look as though they have roundish or heart-shaped leaves. That's right. As we come up through time, the leaves of these plants become less wedge-shaped and and more full, 
they've got a, a margin which goes right around the outside with no incisions in it. And the things become more flattened, if you like, more webbed and more photosynthetically efficient. What importance is it in terms of the Earth today, knowing how our ancient forests were? We know today that there's a tremendous difference between environments in which there are natural forests and environments today where those forests have been stripped away and you're left with bare earth. Think of a rainforest. If you strip down the rainforest, then the soil that the trees have been growing in is very quickly washed away. There are very important things going in and on in the soils beneath the plants caused by the roots, the fungi in the roots, and the interaction of these roots with the minerals in which they're growing. These are very important processes. They not only control what the soil is like, but in fact they actually draw down gases from the atmosphere, particularly carbon dioxide, and take that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and uh, transport it away so it's deposited as solid minerals within the sea. And this is an incredibly important process. We all know about the problems of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere today. This is one of the ways in which carbon dioxide was removed from the atmosphere in the past. And uh, it's possible that this had a dramatic effect on the Earth. Uh, For example, at the beginning of the Devonian period, carbon dioxide levels were very high. And by the end of the Devonian period, they were very low, and the Earth moved into a phase where it's glaciated, very much like it is today at the poles. And this effect may have been caused by the rise of large trees. That's just one way in which the Earth system is changed by the presence of trees on the planet. Christopher Berry on the relevance of ancient fossilised trees for today's environment. And here with more news from the natural world, inside the Jodrell Laboratory at Kew Gardens is Tamara Jones from the Planet Earth online team. A busy time for stories on the site at the moment, but which ones are your particular favourites? Well, my favourite is about a bird called an African drongo, which mimics other birds' alarm calls, basically just to get a free lunch. So who does it get a free lunch from then? It gets a free lunch from our meerkats, because when it makes this alarm call, the meerkats think there must be a predator around. So they drop their food and just scarper and run for cover, and the drongos just swoop down and grab the food. Haven't the meerkats got wise to this, though? Well, not really, because what's happening, the drongo's really clever, really smart bird, because not only does it use its own alarm call, It mimics other birds' alarm calls to keep the uh, meerkats on their toes. Now, did the researchers know that this uh, was the sort of thing that birds do, do this little deception? No, well, it's the first time um, anybody's really been able to show that birds are actually using deception specifically to get a free lunch. And if you log on to the Planet Earth website, people can actually hear some of these different bird calls. And we're staying with birds for our next story. Yes, well, sticking with avian dishonesty, researchers have discovered that birds are actually serial cheats. I thought that birds were loyal to their partners. That's what scientists always used to think. But, you know, a few years ago, they found out that that's not the case at all. And although birds do pair up for life, they're not actually loyal to each other at all. Is it just the men that that cheat or the male birds? It turns out that it's the females as well. But what this latest study has found is that this behaviour has some kind of genetic basis. 18% of this behaviour could be blamed on their genes. Mm. Is there an evolutionary advantage for this? You can 
think of one for males of the species, which is in order to have their offspring with as many different females as possible, but not so much for the females. There is an advantage to females because when they pair up with their partners, they don't always get the best male because the best male got somebody else. So it means that they might have got the third, fourth, fifth choice. So it actually makes more sense for their offspring to have good genes for their offspring, for them to go and um, flounder off with somebody else. Final story now from the Falkland Islands. Well, researchers from the University of Leicester and the British Antarctic Survey have installed a radar on the Falkland Islands basically to monitor the southern lights. Now, these are the, similar to the, the northern lights when you get particles from solar wind interacting with the Earth's magnetic field. That's right. I mean, all these, all these electrons come into the, uh, the Earth's upper atmosphere, but the reason they're trying to monitor it is because these particles are really damaging to satellites and they can knock out power grids. And so if they can kind of get better at looking at what's going on, monitoring them, they can get better at forecasting them so that when they send up satellites, they know that those satellites might not get so damaged. Tamara Joes, thank you very much. And that's it for today's podcast. You can follow and comment on the latest Planet Earth news, photos and videos on our Facebook page. Until next time, from Kew Gardens, goodbye. <laughs>